I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to be finishing the book. Um, we'll be looking at the last three verses of the book, verses 16 to 19. Um, but for those who haven't been here, I just want to read from verse 2 all the way to verse 19, just for the sake of context. Habakkuk chapter 3. Can you hear me okay back there? All right, great. Starting in verse 2. This is Habakkuk praying to God. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather here this beautiful day to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for your provision of this property that you have entrusted to us. And we thank you that we can use it in ways like this to gather as your people, to fellowship with one another, and to exalt you in praise. And Lord, as we look to your word now, as we ponder these final words of Habakkuk that really become the words of your people, we ask that you would give us ears 
to hear and minds to understand. And most importantly, Lord, that our hearts would receive your word, that we would feed upon it and chew it and swallow it and digest it, and that it would become a part of who we are. We pray for those who may be here this morning who yet do not know Christ, that by your word and by the power of your spirit, you might draw them to Jesus and to realize that they are utterly lost without him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are now looking at the final words from the prophet Habakkuk. And they are shocking and astounding words when you consider his words at the beginning of the book. In the beginning of the book, he's driven by questions of why and when and how. Why haven't you done anything, God? When will you act? How can you use a wicked nation like Babylon to bring justice against your own people? But Habakkuk has wrestled with God. He has studied his word. He has heard his voice. And he has come out on the other side as a different man. He has a new perspective. And it enables him to respond to horrifying circumstances in a different way. It doesn't mean that he doesn't understand God's ways, but he has wrestled with God, and now the words of why and when and how have been replaced with trust, hope, and joy. You see, in verses 3 through, through to 15, he re-articulates all the ways in which God has delivered his covenant people in the past, and the focus, of course, is that of the great exodus. Though he knows that God, God's hand of chastisement is coming against Israel through the hands of the Babylonians, he also knows that God will not forsake his people forever because of what God has done in the past for Israel. He will deliver and save his people as he has done in the past over and over again for his covenant people. See, in the beginning of Habakkuk, we saw a man who questioned and doubted God, even seemed to express anger towards God and his ways. But that's not the case anymore. We see a man who has changed, who has been transformed, so to speak. He doesn't pretend to fully understand the mysterious ways of God, but he has come to a place of surrender to God and a deep trust in God. You see, the first thing we see here in Habakkuk is he has come to a place where he will wait and trust God to act. See, in the beginning, he was frustrated, frustrated over God's timing and lack of response. But now we see a man who will trust and wait for God to act. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk begins by expressing this horrific physical and emotional turmoil that he was experiencing, as you can see, and as you can see, it, it, it impacted his whole body. 
my body trembles, my, my lips quiver, rottenness has entered into my very bones, my legs tremble beneath me. This is a man who is shaken to the core. This is a man who is literally experiencing physical and emotional turmoil. But why? What's causing this? Well, I think Habakkuk has returned to the reality that though God will bring salvation like he did in the Exodus, he also knows that before that salvation comes, the hand of judgment will fall and Babylon will wage war against Israel. And as he knows this to be the judgment of God, it overwhelms him. He feels the weight of what is coming. Habakkuk isn't a Stoic. He's not just trying to suppress his emotions. He has a glimpse of what's coming, and it's as though a sword has pierced through his heart as he ponders this reality. But this overwhelming turmoil doesn't lead him anymore to question God's goodness, but rather he has come to a place where he, will, he can truly say, I will trust the Lord. As he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come on people who invade us. Despite what he knows is coming, horrifying days, he displays real trust in God's ability and promise that he will act on behalf of his people. You see, for, for him to quietly wait for God is to trust God. Remember in chapters 2 verse 3, God tells Habakkuk to wait for the fulfillment of the vision, that though it may seem long, it will surely come. And he calls Habakkuk to wait. And here Habakkuk has, is deciding to trust God with those words. Habakkuk has said he will quietly wait. He's expressing his trust that God will bring salvation to its appointed end. Or bring the vision, sorry, to its appointed end. And what is that appointed end? That God will bring justice against those who invade Israel. And in this context, it's Babylon. He will quietly wait for God to bring his hammer of judgment upon wicked Babylon, which will bring deliverance for Israel. You see, he's waiting for the day of justice against Israel's oppressors. And his quietly waiting is a demonstration of his trust in God. You see, Habakkuk has learned the principle of the key verse in the whole book. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. He believes God's promise that Babylon will not forever torment Israel, and because of this, he can quietly wait for God's deliverance. His soul has become calm despite horrifying days that lay ahead. And what has allowed him or enabled him to come to this state of mind? Well, he has beheld the greatness of God in Israel's redemptive history, and he has heard God's words, and now his soul is calm and even at peace because he knows that God's deliverance will come at its appointed time. See, one of the hardest things for us as humans is waiting, especially when it's waiting for the clouds to lift. And it's only trust 
in an all-powerful, sovereign God who is for us, that will enable us, empower us to quietly wait for God's deliverance. You see, it's one thing to believe in the sovereign purposes of God. It's another thing to rest in the sovereign purposes of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that Habakkuk was inactive, but I am arguing that his soul was not frantic and distraught despite the weapons of Babylon being on Israel's doorstep. He believed and trusted in God and it allowed him to quietly wait for God to act. What about us? Would quietly waiting for the Lord define us when all around us seems to give way? As a Christian living in Canada today, there's a lot more things to be frantic about than my grandparents' generation. How are we responding to the moment that God has placed us in? Are we terrified and stressed out about the days ahead? Or are we calm and confident that even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our King Jesus is with us, His rod and His staff, will comfort us. See, over the last two years, I admit that I found myself extremely frantic at times. I found myself to be in turmoil at times. And often when I was frantic, it was then that I was often the loudest. You see, it seems to me that within our society and even within the church, quietness and waiting are not virtues to be valued. They're not signs of maturity and strength, but often signs of weakness. I think a lot of pastors and Christians were accused of being cowards because they weren't as vocal and loud as others. And it's possible that some people were cowards, but isn't it also possible that maybe some of the quietest Christians over the last two years were quiet, not because they were fearful, but because they were really trusting and waiting upon God. And behind the scenes, is it possible that they were actually far more active than some of the loudest people? See, we're living in an, ex- in an ex- anxiety-driven culture. People are worried fearful and anxious about the future. There are more young people on anxiety meds than ever before. People are worried about the future for their children, climate change, political polarization, distrust in institutions. And one of the ways I believe in which Christians can be a powerful witness to society is in the midst of all the panic. Christians are the ones calmly quietly waiting upon the Lord, trusting Him despite the terrifying surroundings. Imagine being a person whose only hope for things getting better today is found in politics or other humans. No wonder people are worried and anxious. And as Christians, we have an incredible opportunity to display to the world that we need not be frantic about tomorrow. Because our tomorrow is controlled by our sovereign king who is on our side. See, Habakkuk knew that Babylon 
was about to decimate Israel. And yet he came to a place where he trusted God and his trust in God empowered him to quietly wait for God to act. Is that us? Does that describe you? Alistair Roberts recently wrote a short little reflection on all that's going on in our society. Uh, The political polarization, the moral collapse of our day, and the anxiety about the uncertainty of our day. And how we as Christians and pastors ought to respond. And, And I genuinely think what he wrote was some of the most important words I've read this past year. Listen to these words, it's quite long. One of the greatest challenges facing Christians today is that of resisting a totalizing culture war mindset of not allowing fixation on cultural battles to crowd out more fundamental matters. There clearly are cultural battles to be fought, but the overwhelming majority of our Christian labors are not found in them. And where our primary labors are neglected, we will not be fit to fight them. Without abandoning politics, we need to resist their totalizing impulse. Prayer, worship, reading reading of and meditation upon scripture, sharing of life with the people of God, the works of mercy, service of and evangelism of those without, all seem to be diminished or distorted when culture wars and politics dominate people's horizons. While it is not without its place, the amount of attention that people give to the cause of politically defeating their non-Christian opponents in contrast to the cause of communicating the gospel to them, is quite an indictment upon the contemporary church. The same can be said about the amount that is spoken and written about, and the amount of attention that is given to hot topic culture war issues in comparison to the enduring truths of our faith. The fruit of such a political fixation is unsurprising. Political tribalism increasingly eclipses and co-ops theology. Reactive relation to political and ideological opponents takes priority over positive relation to the truth. Hear this. The Christians most equipped to function faithfully in such a society will be those who are best able to resist hyper-politicization as they create realms of personal and communal peace and calm. They will have much more ability to give something of value to realms of conflict. Such realms of peace and calm also enable people to stand firm against error non-anxiously and calmly. They can withstand error and opposition non-reactively, loving their enemies and not responding in kind. Practically, creating such realm will require positive and negative steps. Positive actions like increased time in prayer and scripture, private reading of old books, and more time with family. Negative steps like cutting out much social media. One of the major tasks, and this is for pastors like myself, one of the major tasks of pastors and church leaders is to create such realms for their congregation. 
while standing firm against cultural errors and opposition without being anxiously or reactively fixated. They must focus their congregations on the constructive essentials. Good leadership frees people from anxiety and allows them to be built up in positive truth rather than constantly functioning like cornered animals. Effective leadership is greatly undermined when people are reactively fixated upon the spectacle of the political enemy on social media. Leaders in such an environment will constantly be expected to be reacting to threats in the spectacle and will lack scope to be constructive. And most such reactions will be little more than spectacle themselves, part of a constant game of political positioning, rather than actually forming people to live soberly in a dark age. Hear this last line. As Christians, we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds. We need a calm joy amidst opposition, and we need a love that, without denying its existence, does not allow enmity to have the final word. I realize that was long, but I think those are some of the most important words I've read over this last year. As Christians, we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds. We need a calm joy amidst opposition, and we need a love that without denying its existence does not allow enmity to have the final word. You see, Habakkuk knew that opposition was on Israel's doorstep. But he quietly waited for God to act because he trusted God with Israel's future. He trusted God with his own future. He waited and trusted in God to act. Secondly, in the midst of losing everything, in the midst of losing absolutely everything, Habakkuk rejoiced in the God of his salvation. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk in verse 17 is articulating dire circumstances. It's hard for us to grasp the severity of the situation because we don't live in an agrarian society. See, if we did, this scenario that he describes would be utterly appalling. This is all a result of the ravages of war. There's been a complete devastation of nature's resources. The complete removal of basic necessities. Everything has been destroyed in Israel. It is, as one commentator puts it, the end of everything that can keep body and soul together. You see, questions like, how are we going to eat today? are at the forefront of one's mind. Will we starve to death? Where will we find shelter? And the natural human's response to such a circumstance is often despair, panic, and hopelessness. See, in situations like this, the worst in humans is usually manifested. In circumstances like this, which Habakkuk describes, 
humans naturally become controlled by their base instincts. I've been reading this uh, short book by a Baptist missionary to Russia during the Soviet Union, and it's the story of him and these other Russian pastors who were arrested and imprisoned in, in these awful prison camps way up north. And it's amazing as he describes what many of the men in those prison camps became like. The circumstances brought the worst out of many of these men. They, beca- they became controlled by their eight base instincts. They became animal-like. But these Baptist pastors stood out. They responded so differently than these other men to their circumstances. They would be found praying, sharing their meager rations of food with others, even singing songs of praise in this war prison or in this prison camp. They were responding in such a way that was unnatural to the circumstances that they had been placed in. It was something almost supernatural. And that's precisely what I think we see here with Habakkuk. The devastation in Israel is enough for the strongest man to despair of life itself. But Habakkuk, in the midst of everything being completely stripped from him and Israel... He chooses to rejoice in the Lord and to take joy in the God of his salvation. He rises above the circumstances by rejoicing in something that transcends his circumstances, namely God and his salvation. His relationship with God, not his circumstances, is the ultimate determiner on how he responds to the situation he finds himself in. And here's why. God and the salvation that he has from God is of far greater worth to him than all the earthly blessings he may have had at the time, even the basic necessities. And if all of these things are stripped from him, he believes he can rejoice because he still has God and he still has salvation. Here's what Habakkuk has done. He's risen above the things that are transient and always changing and has found his joy in the unchanging reality of God and his salvation. His supreme joy resides not in the temporal, but in the eternal. See, he's able to stand upon the ash heap of Israel and worship God with joy because this God has not changed and the salvation he has from God has not changed. Now if Habakkuk was able to rejoice in God for being a God who saves, how much more do we have reason to rejoice in our salvation that we've been given from God? Habakkuk didn't understand the fullness of what it means for for God to be a God who saves, whereas we do. When Habakkuk says, the God of my salvation, he's thinking of of the Exodus, but he's also thinking of God's promise, promise to once again deliver Israel from the oppression of Babylon. But when we, as New Covenant believers, read the God of my salvation, we're thinking of something far more grand than merely deliverance from Babylonian oppression. We're thinking of God saving us from our sins and the reality of death and the power of Satan. 
we're thinking of the saving event that all other saving events of God were pointing toward. At that saving event was none other than Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross for the sins of the world, bearing the holy judgment of God on our behalf, and rising from the dead three days later, conquering death itself. This was the greatest act of God's saving power. Jesus came as God's anointed deliverer to save us from our sins and the judgment the, the judgment we so earned due to our sinful rebellion. He died in our place that we might be saved from our sins and the holy judgment of God. And for those who have experienced this salvation, for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ only, understand this. No matter the changing circumstances of this life, the status of your salvation doesn't change. If your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus, nothing in your circumstances will ever cause those sins to come ashore again. They've forever been washed away in the deep of the ocean. If God has made you His child, it means you will always be His child even in famine. If God has promised to complete the good work He began in you, it means He will complete that work, whether it be through gain or loss, whether through joy or pain. For as the Apostle Paul tells us, there is nothing in all of creation, nothing, not our circumstances, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that alone is reason to rejoice even when everything else in life has been stripped from us. God's love will never be stripped from us. See, Habakkuk has come to a place in his wrestling with God where he can truly say that if I lose everything, even my own life, I still have reason to rejoice because God is mine and I am His. In other words, for Habakkuk, God is enough. God is enough. See, I think this passage forces us to ask a really important question of ourselves, especially since most of us living in North America really have experienced blessing compared to much of the world. If God were to strip us from every transient blessing that we have, would God and the salvation we have in Jesus be enough to cause us to rejoice? If God were to strip us from every transient blessing that we have, would God and the salvation we have in Jesus be enough to cause us to rejoice. See, we're so accustomed to rejoice in God for all the blessings He provides. We're not so accustomed to rejoice in God when He strips us of everything but Himself. Habakkuk's words remind me of Job's, Though He slay me, still I will hope in Him. The Lord gives 
and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe I've read this quote before when I was preaching through Philippians, but it's such a powerful quote by Edward Payson. Days before his death from tuberculosis, he wrote to his daughter, and these are the words he said. Oh, what a blessed thing it is to lose one's will. Since I have lost my will, I have found happiness. There can be no such thing as disappointment to me, for I have no desires but that God's will might be accomplished. Christians might avoid much trouble if they would only believe what they profess, that God is able to make them happy without anything but himself. They imagine that if such a dear friend were to die or such and such a blessing removed, they should be miserable, whereas God can make them a thousand times happier without them. To mention my own case, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another, but as every one was removed, he has come in and filled up its place. And now, when I am a cripple, unable to move, I am happier than I ever was in my life before or expected to be. And if I had believed this 20 years ago, I might have been spared much anxiety. You know what this tells me about what God will sometimes do in our lives? He will take us places where we do not want to go and experience things that we do not want to experience. And one of the reasons he does this is to see whether or not our love for him is truly for him or simply all the blessings we've received from his hand. Do you remember Jesus' last words to the Apostle Peter when he restores him to fellowship? Jesus three times asks Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter three times responds, Yes, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus then, of course, tells him, Feed my sheep. But he also alludes to the way in which Peter will die. And remember, it's in the context of Jesus asking him, Do you love me? And this is what Jesus says to Peter. So he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then now he speaks about his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Peter, you you did whatever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John says this, This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And of course, history tells us that Peter was most likely crucified upside down on a cross. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then Jesus says this, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me, follow me. In other words, Peter, if you truly love me, you will go where you do not want to go. And that means follow me. 
follow me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will take you places where you do not want to go. And the question before you or the exhortation from Jesus is this. Follow me. Follow me. You know, if someone had asked me even five years ago, who are the heroes of my faith? I probably would have said things like C.S. Lewis or George Whitfield and many other famous Christians who are known for doing great things. And don't get me wrong, these individuals I'm still very thankful for, and in many ways they are heroes to me. But if you ask me that same question in the last year and a half to two years since I became the pastor of Royal York, my answer would be different. If you asked me who my heroes of the faith are, I would probably say those of you who I've had the honor of pastoring and seeing some of you literally go through hell. Yet here you are week in and week out, lifting your hands and your voice in praise to God, rejoicing in God despite feeling like all of life is crumbling around you. One of my greatest joys as your pastor is watching you come forward in the midst of famine, taking that bread and that cup, and, take, and in taking that bread and that cup, testifying to all of us, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And I know there are days when the dark, darkness seems to overwhelm you, but I also know there are days that even in the midst of darkness, you overcome the darkness by having your soul rejoice in the God of light. You're my heroes in the faith. And I know you'll say, oh, but Peter, it's all grace. Of course it is. You don't need to tell me that. But you still have to walk in that grace. Your rejoicing in the midst of horrifying circumstances has strengthened my faith in Jesus. Don't ever forget that. In the midst of losing everything, Habakkuk learned to rejoice in the God of his salvation. May he help us to do this as well. Which leads to the last thing I want us to see in this passage. In verse 19, Habakkuk, I think, provides the secret to which it was possible for him to rise above his circumstances by quietly waiting for God and rejoicing in God. What was the secret? Look at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In and of ourselves, we do not have the capabilities nor the strength to rise above the circumstances that life sometimes throws at us. But with the strength that God gives that fills and fuels our souls to rejoice in God in the midst of darkness, we're able to overcome any obstacle that may cross our path. As Pryor says in relation to God being our strength, He is an inner a reservoir of boundless resources. He is an inner reservoir of boundless resources. The imagery that Habakkuk uses to capture this is so beautiful. He makes our feet like the deer's. You think of how swift and, and lightly a deer can, can cross over dangerous terrain. That's the imagery. 
God enables us to, to keep moving forward like a deer traveling through dangerous terrain. He makes me tread on my high places. This statement is also so powerful. The high places were, were understood to be dangerous places because the high places were considered to be places under the control of forces hostile to God. These high places were often places of pagan worship. And so when Habakkuk says that God makes us tread on high places, he's suggesting that through God we will prevail against these hostile forces and against our enemies. That though we, that though we may be trampled on for a season... One day we will trample on all these high places and will overcome all that stands in hostile opposition to God and to His people. But it's only, it's only because of the strength that God gives. It's only by the strength of God that we can overcome anything. We are too weak. We know this experientially. As Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Habakkuk has become the man that he is because he has wrestled with God And through his wrestling, God has made himself known and Habakkuk has come to a place where he can truly say, God is enough. God is enough. What about you? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for believing that you're not enough. And give us faith to believe that you are all that we need in life and death. Give us faith to trust you and to wait for you to act. And fill us with a joy in you and in the salvation we have in Christ that would cause us to rise above the sorrows of this life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.